I'm Vivian. And I'm Justin. And we are your hosts for the podcast series called Mastering Your PhD, sponsored by Les Fonds de Recherche de Québec, and powered by Nero, the next generation mental health platform. This podcast is for students by students, aimed primarily at graduate students like yourself who are trying to navigate through the ultra-competitive and challenging world of academia. So today, our podcast is called From Everywhere to Quebec, and we're going to be talking about how we find stability amid studies all around the world. Yeah, it's very, you know, everyone, a lot of graduate students travel during mm -hmm. their studies. It's very interesting to see how know why that is first of all and how they adapt themselves to different cultures and different countries right and our guest for today her name is caroline and she is a phd student in mental health at mcgill university but she has traveled all over so the list of countries goes from china to france scotland sweden vietnam and the u.s and she recently moved to canada amidst a pandemic and so trying to find community Uh, when everything is online was definitely a challenge for her and she talks about that in the episode. And without further ado, let's welcome Carolyn. All right, we ask each of our guests to say one or two sentences to introduce themselves. We actually got this idea from you, Carolyn. So <laughs> would you be able to give us a one to two uh, sentence summary about who you are and what you do? Cool. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so my name is Caroline Beck. I'm a first year PhD student at McGill University. I'm, I'm part of the psychiatry department and more precisely, I'm part of the cultural and transcultural uh, division of the department. And I'm supervised by uh, Professor uh, Lawrence Kermier. Uh, I'm actually talking to you from Montreal. So I'm based in Montreal at the moment, but I'm originally from France. Uh, also, I haven't lived there in six years, wow. I'd say. And uh, my PhD topic very quickly said is about cultural adaptation of uh, Indigenous suicide prevention programs uh, and how cultural practices and incorporating culture in suicide prevention programs can, um, can foster um, connection and collaborations in between uh, Western and Indigenous researchers. Very cool. And, and how did you get interested in the subject? It's a very uh, specific and niche kind of area. It's so it's a long story, but I'll try to make short. So um, I, I have a training in anthropology uh, and specifically medical anthropology from France. And over the last five years, six years now, I've been working with community-based organization, international organization, like across the globe, really, uh, as, you know, whether it is as an assistant, as a coordinator, sometimes even as a researcher. And I've been noticing, really, that uh, there are some amazing literature and amazing programs coming from North America, especially from McGill uh, and other universities coming about cultural adaptation of projects. And uh, that stems from a certain way of working, which is very collaborative, which is very uh, strength-based, And this is not something that I often saw with other uh, projects on the ground in international development. And last year, I worked for the Suicide Prevention Centre uh, out of Karin Karolinska University in Stockholm. And I realized the same gap. And I was like, hey, I'm actually very fascinated by uh, suicide prevention. So why not try to see if cultural adaptation could be uh, a way to... Um, to foster collaboration between Indigenous um, people and Western researchers slash practitioners that work in this project. And 
maybe you could improve it. So, yeah, I pitched this project to Lawrence, but I contacted out of the blue and it worked. <laughs> I'm wow. here today. So, it's, yeah. It's very, it's very interesting that you got this idea, not, not even being in Canada and in Sweden, you said. So, yeah. How did you do some research beforehand on Canadian indigenous cultures or indigenous communities or how did that come? It was always around, I'd say. Uh, I, in my master's, I did my master's at the University of Edinburgh in, Scot in uh, Scotland. And I really continued having a focus on anthropology, global mental health. And, you know, it's the same names always come when you do these readings and actually Lawrence, who is my supervisor, was the person that I cited the most through my entire master's. But I'm terrible with names, so I didn't really remember his name. And when then I started to work in suicide prevention, and I thought, hey, this you know, cultural adaptation could be very interesting. Let's look at what's out there. And I saw some of his work about you know cultural practices, and I just contacted him. Just yeah, <laughs> and I was like, oh, you're the guy I cited my entire. Masters, yeah, okay, that's the same. Yeah, that's the same person. Cool. <laughs> so that alleviated a certain amount of stress because I actually didn't, you know, I I didn't know him uh, more than just a few names on papers. Wow, and here you are in Montreal. <laughs> yes, so you're an international um, student, is that correct? Yes, that is true. Yeah. So you came how many months ago? Two, three months ago. I think I arrived, I was looking uh, on December. my papers. I think I actually arrived the 27th of November. Um, and so I started my PhD remotely from Sweden uh, because visa and COVID and delays. <laughs> uh, it's absolutely, un I can't even imagine moving to another city, let alone another country across the Atlantic Ocean. During a pandemic. Through a pandemic. <laughs> Um, without any family or friends at the at the destination, and you just, you know, you're just going there with so many questions, so many unknown, and you didn't even visit the city of of Montreal. You, you know, it's what was your what what was your experience as a international student during a pandemic in a new city? <laughs> that is very wide. <laughs> But there's a lot of things to say. <laughs> uh, I'll try to be a bit structured. Don't hesitate to like put me in the right direction if I'm going too Go uh, far. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so yeah, never been to Canada before. I've been to North America uh, in uh, in the US specifically, but never to Canada. Um, I knew actually I knew one person. I was friends from my parents, and we met once when I was five years old. <laughs> that is all. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, so I I didn't, you know, COVID, when I applied for my PhD, COVID really started, you know, I got the result in May last year. So I knew I was accepted. I was super, I was super excited. My partner, Jeff, and I were living in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And it's not our first rodeo to move to another country and start over. So I've done that in China, in the, in the UK. We've done it for the first time together in Sweden, uh, And we're like, hey, it's going to be just another move. Uh, he is a postdoc at a Stockholm University. He actually got another postdoc at Edinburgh. Like our situation was a bit sorted. And then COVID was just, just another factor. 
and we didn't think it would be that complicated. <laughs> uh, so there was visa delays. I applied a lot early and really aimed to move to Sweden and move to from Sweden to Canada on my own in June, you know, to get settled in June 2020, you know, to get settled before the start of uni. And so we downsized apartments, moved into 30 square meter studio because Jeff would be living on his own for uh, for a few months before joining me. And then the visa didn't come and we're like stuck in a 30 square meter studio. Oh, wow. I was working evenings because time difference, you know. Yeah, and I remember. <laughs> This is how we met, Justin, yeah. actually. Yeah, it was just... We met and she was talking. I, I was speaking to her in the morning and she mm-hmm. was just like ready to go to bedtime or it was like <laughs> totally... And she was tired and I was like awake. <laughs> but it's so it's so strange, especially, you know, dealing with meetings and, and pr- your professor and, and handing papers in with such a time difference. I remember it was, it was something... It's not fun, uh, but you know, you you just make do. It's it's you know, it's it's my reality. That's how I started as a PhD. So really, I didn't know any better. Really, I was a bit jealous of others that were in Canada. I'm like, oh, of course, you know, I'd like to make it to this amazing meeting, which is afternoon for Canada, but in Europe, it's actually the middle of the night. Mm. And it was a bit, you know, you had a bit of research fear of missing out in that yeah. case. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, and when it comes to logistics to move to Canada during COVID, I was lucky to be in one of the first wave of students they admitted back in. So they kind of reopened the border in middle of November. And I was part of the people they processed and went very quickly. So I had everything sorted, you know, like all of my possessions, I they were ready to be shipped as soon as I had the visa. We were we, we've been isolating anyway in Sweden for the entire time, so we knew we were ready to go. And we just had to quarantine when we arrived for two weeks, but in a place of our choice, it was not a hotel quarantine. So mm-hmm. it was very, the transition was smooth, I'd say, because we are organized and we had, you know, checklist being like, okay, do we have everything? Uh, how do we deal with searching, looking for an apartment? Like I found these flats and we signed for it when we were still in Sweden. So we hadn't seen the flat in person. Oh. Like we could be in trouble, (laughs) a lot of risk. Uh, But, you know, I asked a friend that, uh, a colleague, which is no friend, that lived not too far and she came to visit with having me on like WhatsApp. She was holding the the camera so that I could see what the flat looked like. Right. Um, But anyway, that was uh, the reality of moving there. And one of the things that I, I think also is important to mention is that uh, I, it was, I had a lot of support, you know, if people were very understanding at McGill, be like, oh, I know it's evening for you. They're very apologetic when they had, you know, no other time to meet than very late my time. Typical Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sorry. I mean, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Uh, but, <laughs> exactly. But uh, the, the main issue was that also uh, during all these times, so these three months that I spent uh, out of Canada, because I had never been there before. I didn't have a Canadian identity. So I didn't have a bank account in Canada. And McGill, despite its best effort, is not able to pay students uh, in international country that have an international bank account. So I didn't have salary to start with uh, for my PhD. Luckily, I had Jeff, who was, you know, uh, supporting uh, me. I know other students moved to their parents. So, you know, they, they, we all 
we're a big community of international students and we had a very active Facebook groups about sharing tips and being like, How, what are you guys doing? So we manage, but it's true that it hasn't been easy for some of us that don't have actually a US or um, Canadian bank accounts because uh, it's, uh, I don't know, something was not possible there. So that was not easy. Uh, also. And, uh, you, you, you said you were in China or Vietnam? I actually, yeah, I've worked in China for six months and also I worked in Vietnam also Vietnam, for a few months. France, Sweden, and now Canada. What brought you to all these countries and, you know, where's next? What's next? Um, what brought me to these countries? Uh, I'll be, I'll give you a straight answer is work. I always really, work. I am... Um, I work in applied anthropology and there's not many jobs out there. So you end up taking what you find. Uh, so this is the economy uh, we seem to be living in. So I was just going from opportunities to opportunities. I, I worked with a philanthropic advisor company in 2014 in Philadelphia. Uh, for, it was just an internship, you know, like I, I don't know how I got in, but <laughs> it was a great internship. And actually really got a uh, good contact with a community-based organization in an orphanage in China. And I said, hey, I would like to spend time with you and I can help out and I'll do it volunteering. Like I speak Chinese. What? Wow. You speak Chinese? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I learned Chinese in high school and did wow. a, a translation degree in it. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I didn't even know that we know each other. Wow. Um, Even though we talk about culture, I'm in the same, kind of the same lab as you. I took a cultural psychiatry class, the same one. That's where we met in the cultural psychiatry class at McGill. Um, and it was always very hard for me at the beginning to understand what is culture. Because it's been, it can be employed in so many different ways. And, and so there's so there's so many discrepancies between different cultures as well in, in mental health, like you're talking about in the ind indigenous communities. Are there, we, we can talk about different cultures, right? Amid the indigenous peoples. Um, is there any difference between um, their mental health or their resilience in any way? Or how has the pandemic disproportionately affected the mental health of indigenous populations? Yeah, and if it, it, it varies across cultures. Mm -hmm, right. I think actually you you put your finger on something which is very very important when it comes to understanding indigenous health and indigenous mental health. And same here, I'm a student. I'm not an expert, yeah. um, uh, and I'm not actually an expert about how uh, COVID nineteen has impacted indigenous people. Uh, I haven't. Yeah, I just wanted to put a disclaimer <laughs> here. But but even so, let's focus about Canada. There are extreme health inequities. Uh, for Indigenous people compared to non-Indigenous peoples in Canada that are stemming from long-lasting legacies of colonization, cultural oppression, and racism, but are impacting um, Indigenous peoples to this day. So in that case, of course, uh, COVID-19 would have a disproportional uh, impact by non-Indigenous uh, non people because there are these existing um, inequities that, uh, that impact uh, Indigenous people. So see, the only way I could talk about experiences when it comes to COVID-19 is via my lived experience as a research assistant in um, a family well-being program, which uh, originates from uh, McGill University and directed by Lawrence Cormier. And 
this program called Listening to One Another Project, or L2A for short, works with the First Nation communities across um, across Canada. And as someone that just arrived in the project, I found very interesting that, you know, in-person programming due to uh, social restriction had to be paused or halted for the, for the moment. So it's there is a lot of things that were put on pause. And I think when we think about the impact of COVID-19 on mental health, even for any type of ethnocultural groups, it would be very heterogeneous. And that's also what we've seen uh, um, in, in the program with some community partners, some in, say, East are very much ready to start programming very soon and others in different communities uh, are not and are still on lockdown. So there's been successive waves that have been hitting communities at different time. There's been seven waves of COVID-19 um, in Canada anyway, and we've seen that some of these waves uh, are um, have been impacting different communities at different time. I really recommend, actually, the reading, there's um, Alexandra uh, King and... Um, uh, I have been to today. I had one of these paper open actually. Uh, it's uh, anyway. Uh, Alexandra King participated to, uh, to an article that, and Malcolm King um, participated to a very very interesting articles about uh, indigenous health and COVID that I'll be able to send to you if you want more information about it. But I think yeah, as with any groups, it's been very uh, COVID nineteen impacted indigenous people very heterogeneously and. Um, but yeah, uh, that is uh, shown by so health inequities that exist uh, since colonization. Yeah. And, you know, I think not just Indigenous populations are, are susceptible, but I also think about other cultures, not necessarily defined by countries, but if you think about the academic culture and grad students and how they also may be more susceptible, perhaps, um, to mental health uh, and and struggles during this time. What do you think it is about academic culture? If you may comment a bit on, on your own experience and your time in academic culture so far, do you think what role does academic culture have to play in in mental health or resilience and grad students coping in the pandemic? I think that so academic culture is very complex to navigate, really. Uh, and of course, it would impact uh, graduate students completely because it's a different world that people are launched in sometimes without many people to to navigate this you know troubling right, water of what is academia yeah uh, ex exactly uh, and I think that um, academia is very complex and it's very individualized as well like it's according to what we think okay you know it, it's not. It's maybe not a way of thinking that is per university, but it's per student, you know. It's your project and your, your expertise. Your project, yeah. And your lab can have a different perspective or a different way of thinking than another, which is great. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's true. And I think it's also, I mean, that's the advice that was given to me when I started to go more in, in, in academia. And I remember it was one of my first week of integration at Edinburgh University. They, people told me like, that graduate life is actually can be very lonely and you have to have a support network in place. Right, and 
you should try to reach out to people and get to know them because when you just work at it, it's what I love about academia really is the ability to work on your on your research project to be mentor, mentored and supported by other experts. But this is, it's your baby you're carrying for several years yeah. and that's your shaping. And it's fascinating, but it can also be very lonely because you're the expert on your subject. And I do think it's very easy to put yourself into a bubble and not, you know, not getting Interact. enough social support. Yeah, exactly. And I see behind you, our audience doesn't see it, but I see two beautiful cats. <laughs> Is that, are those part of your support network? I think completely. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, we, yeah. we, we adopted them in December. Right, and, right when they you know, came, they got the cats. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, we've been thinking about it for years and know that, you know, I got to work on the same project for a few years. I don't have to run after jobs and, after interviews so that's it's the just very exciting table. but also I haven't met I met one person in person since I arrived uh in November <laughs> it's, we didn't even you know meet. there's been a lockdown that started and we we, we didn't even meet in person now we met I uh, we had like a, a tea uh, <laughs> together and uh, via virtual Zoom tea. and <laughs> exactly virtual tea and it's just been yeah, so I think really even having pets, like it's really helped me. Like I, yeah. I you know, I have someone to play with and <laughs> and it's it's a nice distraction from life. And I like having the cat tree behind me during meetings because nice when it gets time. too long or courses get too long, it's very entertaining to just watch the <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they love it. Uh, but you're lucky. You're lucky considering all this because you have a partner with you. Yeah. That's a big big advantage or it could be that you'll tell me if, if it's that a I get along with yeah that you get <laughs> along with um and you you worked it out with him because he also has a job you know in Edinburgh I imagine yeah and he had to you know give up a little bit of his job to join you in your job here in Montreal so there's a very interesting chemistry that happened there but you know now you're 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 in Montreal you have your your you're a partner we're with Vivian here. She just got engaged. Congratulations. Her part, she's not. Her it's long distance though long. in a pandemic. So imagine. Mm. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so I'm, that's what I'm saying, Carolyn, you're so lucky that you can have, you know, that partner with you because isolation is a very big issue right now. And I see graduate students, um, my friends, uh, colleagues who are suffering because yeah. all the coping mechanisms that we had before, if it was going out to eat, going to see our friends, going to bars, going to dance, whatever we it was. We can't do that anymore. We can't do that anymore. And so we're, we're, we're at home. And, you know, if we don't have our cats, if we don't have somebody to talk to, it's, or a family network, especially for international students, it's super hard. I just don't, you know, you can say you have family around. Yeah, I mean, I think... I have the advantage of having lived in Montreal for a couple of years. So I have friends that I ask me how I'm doing in my research and I can talk to them about it. But I think a support network is crucial. And if you don't have one, when you come and you're introverted, right? Like, how do you reach out? Who do you reach out to? Who do you ask for help to? Uh, so I, I really empathize um, for people who came and maybe Carolyn, do you have some helpful tips for, <laughs> for people who feel overwhelmed, you know, having come to Montreal and not know, known anyone? 
it's it's not easy really and i think uh we we were actually discussing it uh the other day with with jeff and some friends over the phone i think you know i, I moved to several places so you know i kind of have a system in place for, for me like okay i'm arriving in a new place well let's get to know my co-workers and be like hey do we get along do we want to have a drink it might work sometimes it doesn't work you know it's not the type of environment do you guys have a virtual and, tea Exactly. Do you want to do virtual tea? Like yeah. that's also part of it. That's a great and idea. Yeah. And and even, you know, it's usually what we've been doing with, with Jeff is we all have our activities. Jeff is actually a very gifted guitarist and he joins bands. I get into plant, I'm very into plants and embroidery. So I, I could join group there and then we, we meet people, but it's a pandemic. We cannot meet people at a pub, at a concert also in Sweden, actually also. And that's, I never thought I would do this uh, to find friends. <laughs> I actually use an app called Bumble BFF uh, oh, and yeah. I met a friend and we we were like super close in Sweden and we're still messaging each other. And it really helps. That's an interesting Getting tool. out of that barrier to meet people. Yeah. Um, but COVID happens. So, you know, I, we had to get creative. So I created a PhD get together group with students, PhD students from my department. So we meet every Monday and, we created that space, you know, to love how I'm to not We don't that. even share an office. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. <laughs> but, you, uh, you, but you're from the department of you're not psychiatry department. I know. So that's why yeah, she wants like, to you be part of it now. So sad. I feel even more isolated. <laughs> oh my goodness. I will send you an invite. <laughs> uh, it's at eight a.m. on Monday. So. That's very early. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you guys do at this at these support groups? You guys just kind of share what's going on. We we share, and you know, there's a lot of things that actually to come back to graduate student life, like that. We don't know how to navigate. How yeah. how do you deal? I don't know if you get rejected for several grants. If you don't know how to handle a course, or if you have you know issues with your supervisor or if you have money troubles or who do you go to in academia to talk about this there's advisors but Mm. they're not us they're not students they might have gone out of being a student a while ago and they don't remember what it's like so I I wanted to create that space really to to express whatever if you want to vent about your article being rejected for the fourth time do vent like it's it's here for that and at the same time we try to provide you know advice based on our experiences so sometimes it's very limited because actually a lot of people from my cohort uh, in psychiatry they just created this PhD in mental health so we're all first-year students we've one or two students that have been there as PhD ad hoc uh, in the department for a while but we, we're the fresh bunch so we're getting so newly created classes we're really so um, you know we're the guinea pigs of, right. uh, of our department so it's it's nice to have that space and I guess actually one of the cool things about pandemics when it comes to social network especially for people that have moved around a lot is actually all my friends in other country are stuck at home mm. so they're not up and about so we are we were able to recreate like game nights uh mm. you know tr- trying to find like an online game um whether it is like a real gaming game or like a cards against humanity or uh, a board game or even just pub evening which for us are in the afternoon on the weekend so yeah it's it's afternoon pub but it's okay <laughs> you know, that's an interesting point because we're talking about being isolated more and more but actually it 
this all this virtual stuff can actually bring us together around the world because you know more than ever you know we can just open a zoom call and have our friends from new zealand play a game with us you know so it's actually or talk to our family like facetime you know it actually is a way or tool to bring different communities and people together around the world. Although I do think it requires more intentionality, right? Because now it's like we have to schedule the Zoom call and I think people have to be more proactive. Right. Um, and, you know, that that's a good reminder even for all of us of like, even though it is harder, we have the choice of whether we just want to stay at home and be really sad or will we take the initiative and take that step of, you know, for example, like what you did, Carolyn, to, to start a group. Yeah. I think that's accessible to all of us. And it's hard to step out like that, but it's really good. It's, and it's not easy because we, let's be honest, we're all like Zoom over, overloaded. Like yeah. it's, it takes, I think I like what you said, it does take initiative, but you have to do the best with so cards you're given. And yeah, it's it's not always uh, easy. Like, of course, I would like to, I haven't seen McGill. <laughs> that's something that's always what I say. I'm like, yeah, I live in Verdun, which is a lovely neighborhood. And I love going on walks next to the river and it's amazing. But I haven't been in central Montreal much because I don't take a risk in taking public transport when I should be at home. And it's so, yeah, it, it makes you feel, it can make you feel very alienated and very isolated mm. from so community that can be created via academia. But I, I think there is other alternatives and it's, you can create meaningful relationship online, I, I think. And I can, you can sustain a relationship online too. And it requires effort. But like in all relationships, it requires effort, right? You have to plan the event and you go to the event and you take the time for it. I think it's super important. And I think one reason why groups like these are important in academia is because we often can look at our peers or even people in our lab and see them as threats or like we're stressed by them mm. because we're their competition. And I think, you know, when I first came to McGill, my whole first year, it felt like it was just me. I felt like my problems were my, were my own to solve and it was just kind of me going through it. And so you don't want to burden other people. You don't want to slow them down. And so you don't talk about it. And I think because everyone thinks that way and they see the other person as maybe, you know, either competition or someone who has their own project and they don't want to stress them out, um, we don't reach out. And um, yeah, like I, I want to see a lab culture that's more supportive and more collaborative and where we can talk about these things and not see each other as, as competition. Um, and I think if more labs or more groups were like that, uh, I think that kind of culture is what can really change um, mental health in academia. I, I think I, I completely agree. Yeah, it's, it's very well said and completely agree with you. I think it depends on on the position of so PhD students, for example, like for my case, I my project is really multidisciplinary and it really brings from I'm in the department of psychiatry, but I'm not a psychiatrist by training. Um, I'm not a medical practitioner. I I, I learned things about the brain, but I had no idea what they were like <laughs> two two months ago. So it's really I, I'm very my background is very different but to a lot of people from my cohort. So I don't feel as much competition because. I'm doing something completely different. And I think that's also one of the beauty of academia going more towards multidisciplinarity is that I see a way for us to help each other in and build competences and skills and communicate with one another because there's less competition because our projects are different. 
And it sometimes makes me sad when I'm thinking about organizing, you know, maybe some journal clubs or I was part of the Graduate Student Association for a few months and I don't know, there is not much engagement there. And I think it might be linked to this competitivity that you're talking about. People don't want to really share and you just feel threatened. So maybe you just, you know, you don't want to open too much because... You, you're you going to be vulnerable. Exactly. You're making yourself so vulnerable. Right. You open yourself up and like, oof. Exactly. Yeah, it's a protection mechanism that we, most people have is that, you know, we don't want to talk. We just want to show that we're strong. Yeah. Because if you break that you know, that uh, image, then it's, you're, you're, you're too vulnerable and then, you know, you could break. Yeah. And because we think weaknesses are not accepted, like it, it's, but it's not true. <laughs> it's, it's so important to put the limits where you'd be like, Hey, I actually am emotionally empty right now. I cannot do it anymore. Let's just, let's just rain check. Like I, I remember a conversation when I just moved, I had just moved to to Canada and it was hard to get adjusted with, Travel was complicated and stressful, you know, like traveling, moving country is already not always fun, but moving country during a pandemic, people were checking up paperwork all the time. And anyway, it's, you know, this very scary thing when you don't really feel welcome because people keep on like looking at some nitty gritty things as if I was going to, I don't know, Uh, but you know, it's, it was, it was not easy. And I had my, uh, a PhD advisory meeting uh, two weeks later. And I remember talking to to my supervisor, but I mean, like I, I just don't know how I can really prepare for it. I'm just so stressed. I, I don't feel, you know, I, I'm not grounded anymore. I'm just completely spitballing here. And it was just very reassuring and just having this space to talk. to talk and to vent. And it, I think it doesn't respect me less because I told him I was feeling vulnerable. You relate you know? to that, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, completely. And I mean, it is an, a, Lawrence is an, a beautiful person, so really yeah. it's... He is really able to empathize with the condition, uh, but with, with his condition. And it's just, yeah, like it's, I think it doesn't make you less of a person to admit sometimes that it is too much. And what we're living, I mean, we're living in a crazy world where like the idea of a pandemic, we're worldwide pandemic we're like this. Like, we're currently playing in a movie. <laughs> we're going to say exactly. to our children, our children are going to say, you had a curfew at eight? Like, what, <laughs> what's happening here? Yeah. Exactly. And we need to take it kind we need to be kind to ourselves and just it's it's okay to to feel down, to feel stressed, to feel overwhelmed. And I think I, I want to see academia supporting this more than creating a few I don't know. I, I do think that the academic world can be very um can be very harsh. And I would like to see a more empathetic and a more open uh, academic world. I think it would be great. I'm with Um, you on that. I'm with you too. (laughs) But it all starts with ourselves, right? Do you think that we have the power in us to start that change or does it have to come from something higher in the organization? Like if we're nicer to ourselves, us, would it make a difference? Because academia is very independent. We were talking about that before. It's our project. It's our lab. It's our little baby. You were saying, Carolyn, um, if we are nicer to ourselves, if we're nicer to, you know, we, we put ourselves less pressure, you think that would be helpful? I think completely and being nicer to others too. Uh, and it's something that, as you say, Vivian, we can be caught up in the competition and being like, oh, you know, that person didn't perform well. Yeah. Well, or that person is having trouble at the moment. Well, I'm just going to reach out and see if they want to talk. 
And I think one of so uh, I've been attending to like a workshop a few months ago. I was talking about so the importance of reaching out instead of saying, tell me, is there anything I can do for you? Mm. No, offer to have a tea, offer to have a walk, offer to have an action instead of asking the person that is already in trouble to, to tell you what to do. Just try to take initiative. And I think it's, it, it's yeah, it, it's a great way to support one another as graduate students, as postgraduates, even on the, you know, with everyone around like yeah it's important to put limits and just to to be open i think it's it's what makes us human isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah and perfectly perfect and you know just in what you said i think that really is a big mindset change of we can affect a culture because i think sometimes we think that academia is only top down and you know we're just subject to whatever lab culture we ended up with and our supervisor needs to change things yeah. And, you know, when you realize that it can be a small action, like what you said, Carolyn, asking someone for coffee or um, asking them how they're doing, I think it really um, it empowers us to know that we can um, reach out. And, you know, I remember even a small thing that I did. I went to France uh, for a couple of months and realized that the whole lab had coffee breaks every day. And I said, why doesn't my lab have coffee breaks? Right. They had a WhatsApp group. And I was like, why, why doesn't my lab have like a WhatsApp group? So I came back and I said, guys, we are starting a Facebook messenger group <laughs> because there is no reason not to. <laughs> exactly. You know, sometimes we don't, you know, our supervisors are not experts in management. You know, we were talking about that in another episode where, you know, we're not, they're not, they didn't go to school to, to know how to manage people. They went to school to learn about their subject, you know, so human relations and all that, it's not their forte. So if, you know, we learn from other people, what other people are doing, even in other sectors, it can be in, in corporations and seeing how they manage their employees or their staff or their team, you know, and bringing those initiatives back to our lab, I think that's pretty pretty interesting you know whatsapp group coffee breaks it's, it's these are things that are small details but that can really create a nice lab culture and really help us out in the long, on the short term and long term it's super important and we're talking about also who do we go to if we have an issue if we are having a meltdown if we're having a panic attack we can't finish our work where do we turn to do we go to our supervisor would you? <laughs> do, we show, do we show that we're vulnerable? Are we able? I think it, it either depends on the supervisor, depends on us. I think I would. But not every student would feel comfortable. I that's, think that's what I'm that's saying. That's the thing. It's like so dependent on each. Yeah, because you want to prove something to yourself, yeah. but also you want to prove something, especially to your supervisor. You know, he chose me or she chose me. And um, I'm in a position that I have to impress this person always, constantly. And you have a lot of pressure on yourself. So if you want, if you're going to show that person that you're vulnerable, you know, it might, it might not be the way, I don't know. you would be scared to do that. I think it would be scared. And I think it's a discussion to have when, when you meet your supervisor, when you try to decide who you want to be supervised with, because it's also, it's a two-way discussion, right? It's not only you that needs to, you know, if you, if you already have the discussion with your supervisor, I mean, that your skills are uh, interest them. And I do think that it's also a conversation to have, like, okay, what type of support can you be? And if, for example, you're very busy, who can I turn to? And exactly. I think that's something that actually, uh, when I reflect about my own relationship with my supervisor, that's something very 
early on, but uh, I noticed this, that there are other people in my lab that he recommended to have also chats with and to help. And I built this great mentoring, turned into friendship relationship with a postdoc in my department, Nicole, and she has been very helpful to navigate also the academic world with McGill. But I mean, I didn't know at all how it works in every university. We talk about academia culture as if it's one big culture, but actually also it depends on every university and every lab, et cetera. And it's, it's really important to go for peer mentoring also and peer support, whether it is someone that is more advanced in their PhD, whether it is with a postdoc or a more junior professor. It's, it's just, I think, important to find, a mentor. to build... Yeah, to build your network, to, to to be able to have someone that if you just want to talk through some of the things in your PhD that are not completely related to your topic. I, I, had, a, I had a PhD existential crisis a few weeks ago. Like I, I feel like I'm not moving forward because of COVID and there's many things. What do I do? And I had a chat with one of my advisors, but she's from McGill, and it was just a great discussion. She'd be like, okay. I'm a bit broken. Help me put everything back in in in, in its shape. Perspective. <laughs> and yeah, in perspective. And with Florence, I also had this, but in a different ways because it it I think it's important to know how to balance this relationship and to not overload the same person with your uh, emotional academic issues. I think because. You, you you wanna you wanna spread it, I think, a bit and find several people you can work with. You have to remember that we are the master of our relations with our supervisor, with our with our postdocs, with our colleagues. You know, we have to have that confidence to be able to manage those relations ourselves. We are, you know, yeah. we can control them. We it's uh, if we want to be vulnerable, we'll be vulnerable with this person. It's our choice, you know, and we have yeah. to take control of that. We can't let. Sometimes we feel like we're overwhelmed with. You know, I can't talk to anyone and I have so many people and I can't talk to anyone. You know, a lot of people have a lot of peers and have a lot of friends, but can't open up to them. Why is that? Why can't we open up to people? Is it because they're they not letting us open up or are we too shy or are we too closed or minded to, to open, a, open up to these people? I think in, in the context of COVID, we have to at least find one person that we're comfortable. It could be our partner or it could be a friend, mentor, a supervisor, or a postdoc if we're a PhD, you know, a PhD if we're a master's, whatever it is, somebody who we can talk to at any time and just say, listen, it's not going well. Put me back on track a little bit. And it could be a psychologist. It could be a psychotherapist. You know, we have to be open and um to, to, to have access to these, to, to all this, um, this help. If we need help, we have to you know, admit it to ourselves and find it. And I know for me, especially, I can kind of downplay my struggle and be like, oh, yeah. oh you know, I'm not, I just have to get over it. Or I just, yeah. you know, like uh, you just want to be, be okay and strong and all these things. And, you know, last week, even since you shared Carolyn, like last week, for me as well, I had sort of an existential crisis where my experiments weren't working and, you know, it's hard to, to keep going at it when you feel like things aren't working and you don't know if you should give up on this direction or if you need to persevere. And I think that tension is, is, is hard. Uh, and I had a meeting with my supervisor on Thursday and I, I said, well, all I can do is be honest. 
That's it's my result. I can't, I can't make it be anything that it's not. <laughs> I presented yeah. it to her and she said, do not despair. <laughs> and I was like, oh, good. I'm so happy because I thought that it was going to be, Vivian, why, why didn't you do this and that, you know? And so sometimes people surprise us and they, you know. Always they can, be honest. Yeah. Always be honest and say, listen, don't put too much pressure. If they don't like what you're doing, so be it. <laughs> Go to another lab. <laughs> you don't need that stress. And I think it's, I I never really thought about like a, su- a supervisor as this very authoritative figure that I have to please in front. I mean, we're all humans. They, they must have had, uh, I don't like the word failures, but they must have had issues also mm-hmm. in the academic career, papers that didn't work, experiments that didn't work. So it's just, yeah, I think there's a, there's a sacralization of a supervisor a lot in academic culture. And I think it's important also as students to humanize them and to, you know, remind our supervisor that, yeah, also if we're humans, so we're working together, we're in a, we're in like in a partnership together and you're here to support me and I'm here to do my best. So let's, let's communicate and talk about expectations and, talk through all of this. I think it's, it's very important. Yeah. I love that. Remembering that we're both humans. Yes. <laughs> it's going to probably be the name of the episode. I love it. <laughs> Remembering that we're both, both humans. Oh, it's so, it's so poetic. It's true. Yeah. It's, why are we complicating our lives so much? <laughs> They're probably going through worse, you know, supervisor. More stress than us. It's just a title. They're humans after all. I love that. Well, thanks so much, Carolyn. This has been such a pleasure being able to be with you in this podcast. And yeah, I love, I love all your insights and, you know, just the resilience and strength that you've shown in coming to Montreal and moving here as an international student. Um, And the initiatives that you put forward for you and for your group and for your team. Super. I know we were also meeting every Friday morning before just to discuss during, during our class together, discuss about the week, discuss about our class. And it just, I know for me, it felt super good. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you so much for like having me. It's very interesting and I'm really impressed by all the new initiative and I can't wait to learn more about what you, you guys are doing and really like, yeah, it's, it's great to, create more discussion around mental health and around what we all share, especially as graduate students and just talk about it instead of, you know, hiding it all behind like a surface of, uh, and let, let it build up. <laughs> exactly. Let's, let's just express things. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And yeah, don't hesitate to ask any more questions later. If you guys want to, we probably will. We probably will invite you again, comment on different things. We're going to be talking, probably talking about social and cultural differences in mental health later on. So that's something yeah, that that's might a be really interesting. interesting angle. So yeah, because you know, mental health is not just neurobiology. It's not just mm-hmm. physical. Right. We have to be, we have to consider the social and cultural aspects as well, which is something that people don't think about all the times. And medical doctors don't think about it all the time either. Psychiatrists, you know, so it's a very interesting aspect that we can discuss another time. So Carol. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank you.